Today's episode of the Juicebox Podcast is sponsored by Dexcom. Did you know that the Dexcom G5 Mobile CGM system is the first and only CGM platform available on Android in the United States? It's also available on iPhone, and it comes with a nifty little receiver. Go to Dexcom.com forward slash Juicebox to learn more. Flexible, precise, simple, discreet, waterproof. That's what the Omnipod tubeless insulin pump will bring to your life. Today's episode is also sponsored by Omnipod, and if you'd like to learn more, please go to myomnipod.com forward slash juicebox. And now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to episode 140 of the Juicebox podcast. You're going to remember that back in episode 137, we spoke with a physician who was diagnosed while in medical school and has had type 1 diabetes for a few years. Now today we're going to talk to Dr. Eric Johnson, who was diagnosed at a similar time in his life but 27 years ago. You're getting a little ghost of diabetes present and a little ghost of diabetes future through the eyes of physicians. Listen, don't forget, nothing you hear on the Juicebox podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Always consult a physician before being bold with insulin. Speaking of being bold with insulin, if you want bold with insulin t-shirts before the holiday, you should order now. Go to juiceboxpodcast.com for that. At the very end of this episode, there'll be a tiny little, a tiny little, tiny little tease about next week's guest. I think you guys are going to love it. Uh, My name is Dr. Eric L. Johnson. I'm a uh, physician in Grand Forks, North Dakota where I employed as an associate professor at the School of Medicine and Health Sciences here at the University of North Dakota. And I'm the assistant medical director for the Diabetes Center at All True Health System, also here in Grand Forks. And I've had type 1 diabetes for 27 years. Wow. Wow. That's, uh, how old are you? Do you mind saying? 56. 56. Okay. So you were, you were diagnosed in your 20s then? I was. I was an adult. I was a couple months out of medical school. Um, Of course, we know a great majority of type 1 cases are before age 25, but there is a small percentage that are later. I have uh, diagnosed people in their 40s or 50s with type 1, so it does does happen. Yeah, I've I've actually interviewed somebody that was diagnosed uh, just prior to their 60th birthday. Oh, my. Yeah, Yeah. so it it really is strange. So I'm I'm interested to know that when you're, I mean, so you've got an MD when this happens to you. You had just gotten it. Yes. Is it better to understand or not understand, do you think, when somebody tells you that you're sick? (laughs) You know, that was really a mixed experience. I had a very good idea of what was wrong with me, and I was doing my residency in Fargo at that time, and I had uh, moved from Omaha um, in May, and this was in July. Mm -hmm. And I'd actually gone down to uh, Minneapolis for a couple days for some baseball, and on the way home, I felt really poorly. And a couple of days later, when I got back to clinic, I was really quite ill. And uh, I had all the classic signs. Uh, so, yeah, I, you know, I had the knowledge, but uh, I was really more uh, upset by the timing of it than anything else. Just because it felt like your life was getting ready to, like, get going and then this Yeah. Happened. Yeah. I, oh, I That's exactly that, right. Right, because right, right, you're, you, you know, you, you fight your way through high school as a child you make your sway into school, medical school, and you just think, okay, I've given the last 
easily decade to like serious study and now yeah. I'm, you know, I'm going to start my life and then did it hold you back in any way did it impede your your practicing you know i i took about a week off the uh, university of north dakota where i did my residency they treated me great hmm. um, our program directors and my fellow residents were extremely supportive and of course you know back then we didn't have great quality insulins or technologies this would have been 1989 and uh, I got started on NPH and regular twice a day, bottles and syringes. Yeah. And I had a glucose meter, but it was of the technology where you would put a drop on the stick, you would have to wipe it off a minute later, and then put it into the meter where it would take another minute to read. And that was assuming that you didn't get an error message. Right. And a meter was not something that you would carry around with you. Yeah. That stayed at home. It was that sort of block thing, at, like the size of yeah. a brick, about the size of a brick, right? That's what they... <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty close. Because yeah. I graduated from high school in 89, and a friend of mine was diagnosed our senior year of high school. And I remember him getting this big, I remember it being this big tan thing that just sat in his house, you know. Yeah, and some of the newer meters were emerging at that time, but their quality wasn't that great. Mm -hmm. I had that one that was about the size of a uh, cigar uh, that I was trying out for a company shortly after this. And it, it was not a, a great device, so I didn't really come to rely on it. But, uh, yeah, it was, you know, the quality of the treatments were, it was kind of the just before the golden age of where we started seeing better quality insulins and better quality technology. What was the goal, what was the goal given to you then by, because I'm assuming you saw an endocrinologist, and so what was the goal, you know, what, what, was, what was living a healthy day, like what was the bar set at for you at that point? You know, uh, since since you were on insulin products like NPH that had about an eight-hour duration of action or so and peaked at four hours, the uh, meal schedules were quite rigid. Uh, when you took a dose of NPH, you better plan on eating a meal in four or five hours or you're going to be dealing with significant hypoglycemia. So that was a huge challenge for me as a first-year resident because, you know, I might have some 80-hour work weeks early on. And, uh, you know, I'd have days where I would stay up two nights in a row. And, uh, you know, having to do that all the time uh, was really difficult. And I'm not sure we appreciated then how we really needed to mold the treatment to the patient because we just didn't have the quality of product to do it. Um, A1C was just starting to um, be used in the lab. Um, some labs were still using a measure called glycated hemoglobin, which was a little bit different. And, of course, none of the big trials like the DCCT or the EDIC had been published yet. So we didn't even really know if good control made a lot of difference. It was widely speculated that it would. Um, but I was told to try to stay between 70 and 220. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was pretty much my day. Wow. Yeah, I, I can. So it's such an odd idea. But so if you take, if you took, like you said, you took the, the insulin you had to eat within four hours. Let's say, did you ever just take it and then eat? Or was there, there was no real consideration for the timing of the insulin, right? Like just that you needed to get this food in inside of this at four hour window? Yeah, well, you're, you know, you took NPH and regular together, you mixed them. Mm -hmm. And uh, regular peaked about three hours later, and then the NPH four to five hours later. So, it, you know, the regular was designed to cover the more immediate meal, you know, so I'd like to take it at 6 a.m. and I would have some breakfast. Well, ideally, you would wait 45 minutes before you would eat that meal for the regular to match up. Mm -hmm. 
but I, you know, I couldn't do that. So what I did was I would eat a small breakfast and then part of my breakfast again later and then lunch a couple hours after that. So you were staggering the food to meet up with the insulin. Oh yeah. You had to mold your food to your insulin, not the other way around. And I would just carry a backpack full of stuff, you know, granola bars, you know, and I just, I pretty much ate that stuff all day long. And so do you have any feeling for what your blood sugar was doing in those four hours? Or do you not, I guess there's no really, it's not like you were testing frequently, right? Uh, no, it was, uh, yeah, quite often I did not know. Um, sometimes I would take a blood sugar at 6 a.m. and maybe not again until 10 o'clock at night. Right, right. So um, occasionally I would, if I, was, if I was working overnight on a hospital rotation, like in the ER, I'd have one of the nurses check me if I thought I needed it, whatever that meant. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was not common. Okay. So you were, pro- I mean, if you had to sit here and guess right now, were you probably had an elevated blood sugar most of the time? I think I did because I probably felt that it was necessary for for me to get my work done. Yeah. Okay. Because uh, a significant hypoglycemic episode with NPH with its prolonged peak could be significant and would last a while. It just keeps crushing you and you can't really fight it off it, because at this point it's possible the food you ate is completely through your system and now this NPH is still working. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And and, yeah. and the action time on it was forever, about forever, right? So. Uh, yeah. The the peak the the so called peak it was really more like a dome. Mm-hmm. You know, it was about four or five hours after you ate, but it really was an hour or maybe two hours long. Wow. So timing was everything, and of course, you know, given what I was doing at the time, that was extremely difficult. I think it's good for people to hear that though, because. No matter where you are in the in the timeline of anything, right? It's it's easy to be frustrated with what you have because it's not doing everything you need it to do. But the perspe- yeah. the perspective of what you were doing, you know, in the late eighties, the early nineties, is, I mean, just it seems almost archaic compared to how things are handled now. Um, yeah. When did you yeah. When did you make the leap into? Because I'm assuming I'm, I'm actually maybe you're still like no I love MPH but uh, but I'm assuming I'm, assu- I'm assuming you don't use it anymore but um, no what yeah. was your trans what was your first transition away from that was it faster acting insulin was it a pump how did you how did you kind of traverse through everything well it was interesting I actually started prescribing some pumps while I was in residency I. Uh, you know, I I uh, had I, I had really good treatments from my own doctor, but the uh, diabetes community in North Dakota, which was fairly small then, really embraced me. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a doctor who was older than me who had type one, and she was very helpful. And uh, there was a pediatric specialist and another adult specialist where I was doing my residency, and they they really really helped me along. They were great. It was. Uh, so I, you know, right away I started kind of started collecting my own patients, some of who I still have now. Wow! And uh, I had my first pump patient in 1990, and it was uh, an attorney from Winnipeg, actually. But the technology was not very good then. Um, he was kind of a gadget person. And the first transition away for me, away from NPH and regular, was when an insulin called Ultralente came out uh, in the mid 90s, and uh, it was an attempt at the first basal insulin, but its quality was quality was still not that good. But it was it was considered to be a once a day then. Uh, my experience with it was not very good. And then the analog insulin started coming out in 1999. Um, that would have been like Glargine and uh, 
Humalog came along shortly before that. And I'd been using Humalog as an injection. But then in 1999, when the long-acting analogs came out, I'd already gone on a pump by then. Okay. Do you, do and you think, uh, so I, I never used those long-acting analogs. I see. Do you think that prior to that was the, was the, I mean, you, you could more than guess at this, but was the, was the treatment for type 1 diabetes prior to that just let's, let's see how long you can stay alive and not die today? Is that, it was, uh, yeah. that was it, right? You were just hoping yeah. for the best. It really was. Some of the early data on control was related to retinopathy, um, there was a huge Wisconsin data set that that had looked at that, and then when the DCCT came out in the DCCT came out in 1993, that was the big, large scale, long term type one trial. That this is where we built all of this today. Where, you know, we think of A1C as a gold standard for most adults, um, although that's modifiable for lots of patients now. But uh, when that came out, that was huge because we actually knew that control was going to influence a lot of microvascular complications. Yeah. So I started thinking about it differently then, but the quality of the insulins was still not very good. So that was, that was difficult. In it. fact, in the DCCT, most of the patients were on three shots of regular during the day with their meals and NPH at bedtime. Okay. So you know, you know how when people talk about, um, you know, I, I'd like to take the, uh, the New York Giants from 1923 and see if they played the Dodgers from 83 and see, like, how they would do. I have a question yeah. sort of similar to that. If you took a person today who was, I don't know, had had type 1 diabetes for three years and was just diagnosed three years ago and could put them in a time machine and take them back to you as a doctor when you were 25, do you think that they could kick your butt as far as maintenance of diabetes went? Oh, I think so, because the difference now for patients is not only the quality of insulin and technology, mm. but we have many patients who achieve a very high level of training and knowledge in diabetes. Yeah. Even at diabetes camp, where we have kids, I mean, there's some 12-year-olds at camp whose diabetes knowledge is very high, and that would not have been the case 25 years ago. Right. And I, I think if you have especially very well-trained pumpers who use CGM, their diabetes knowledge is very usually very extensive, mm -hmm. and uh, I think I think that is I think they would have taught me a lot. Yeah, for sure. No, it's just yeah. interesting how it's. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it feels like forever eighty nine to now. But medically speaking, and with advancements, it's a blink of an eye. It's not that long ago. That's right. Uh, yeah. it, 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 I, um, you know, I was I was certainly happy as the technologies got better. Um, that that made a huge difference, and I, I love technology, and I embrace it. And, uh, you know, a lot of patients will talk to you about technology. They're sick about talking about diabetes, but they will talk to you about technology all day long. I think that's the difference, too. I think I think that right now, too, is the first sort of time in the history of diabetes where new technology didn't mean like, hey, here's this thing, let's hope it works. Now you can actually expect that the next thing that comes out will do better for you. I would say almost always. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm I'm the longest running user of a personal CGM in North Dakota. Okay. And uh, the first CGMs were just fair, but I would say in the last three years, um, the quality of CGMs is so much better. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that's right. There's you get to a point where suddenly the product has achieved its quality, and now I think we'll see that just about every step going forward. I I don't think there'll be a lot of missteps in the future. Yeah, it just doesn't seem like like that exists anymore. And, and so are you, are you excited about the con idea of putting an artificial pancreas on or is that, are you, have you had diabetes too long to want to make 
like let the control go like that? Uh, you know, actually, I've been on um, one of them for about ten days. Ah, so you you're you're up for it then? Okay. And that's yeah, and it's going good for me. Yeah, very good. Yeah. What what's the um which one are you are you trying? I'm using the 670G. Okay. What's is there a user definable um target blood sugar or is it defined by the machine? No. Um you actually uh would do this along with your provider, which is what I did. Mm-hmm. And uh I have cardiovascular disease, so um super tight control is really not ideal for somebody my age with cardiovascular disease, okay. but I run my targets from about 110 to about 190. Okay. And, um, you know, I've had uh, very little uh, significant hypoglycemia on this. Most of my overnights are quite very, very flat graph. Um, well, that's during the day, it's still kind of learning me. Yeah. Okay. So. Oh, so it's like the, uh, it's like, the, <laughs> I was going to say, it's like the Nest thermostat. It ha- you have to adjust it a bunch of times before it figures you out a little bit. Uh, yeah, it does. It, it does have a kind of an artificial intelligence program. And the suggestion is that you wear it for a week before you turn it on to the automated mode. Mm-hmm. But it still spends about another week or two continuing to learn you. And I can see that, actually. That's fascinating. And uh, the, uh, one of our reps here who works for that company has type 1, and she's about 10 days ahead of me. There's five of us in North Dakota on this device, and she said it's still doing things that are causing her to think that it's learning her. Wow. That's a, like, do you have an example? Yeah, I do. It, the, um, just kind of try to follow through, um, with, with some of the technical part of this, the, uh, basal insulin is actually a series of microboluses right. that may or may not be delivered on a schedule. So if it sees that you're going down, it actually maybe will just suspend that for, you know, 10 minutes. Mm-hmm before it starts delivering again. So it, it kind of starts to figure out, you know, what your response is going to be like to activity or maybe pushing it a little bit more with a higher carb meal or travel. Uh, so there's, there's always something new for it to kind of figure out. You have to still be fairly concise and accurate with your entry of carbs. Okay. But uh, even there is some leeway with that, I'm discovering. Yeah, it's interesting because... You know, the way, I mean, the way I handle my daughter at this point is, you know, like carb counting, for example, something that's, I don't think it's classic around here. We, you know, we don't, we don't look at a plate usually and say, I think this is, you know, we don't sit there and count the carbs. I look at that at a, at a meal and I say, you know what, I know this is going to take about this much insulin. And then, uh, yeah. and, and then we're aggressive about that insulin, maybe mix it with a bolus to, or, a, or a temp basil to uh-huh. maybe an increased temp basil. And then you kind of live off the the Dexcom data here, and yeah. if, you know if you're if you're seeing a curl up in the at the end of that line, it's okay. Maybe we missed. If it's a curl down, maybe we missed the other way, and then you can, you know, cut back on the basil or, or add more bolus or whatever it ends up being. Um, we just we so kind of do that by um, it just it's just how we do it at this point. And so I always wonder, like now my daughter uses an Omnipod, so we're we're hanging tight for the the Omnipod AP. Um, and uh, Oh, it's going to be great too. Yeah. It, yeah. So is the, so is the T slim Dexcom. They're all going to be great. It's all going to yeah. be, it's going to be absolutely yeah. amazing. That's it's, it's yeah. be like kid in a candy store time. Um, but, but I always wonder, like, I wonder how the transition will be, um, you know, like from, from this setup, but I guess it's just, it's just like anything else, right? Like when I went from injections to the pump, it took me a month to figure it out. This is going to take a month to figure out. And, 
and then you're just sort yeah. of on your way. Yeah. Uh, well, I think there's uh, first of all, I think there's some merit in the way that you do it, especially if you promote consistency with your method. There's actually a, a pretty good study in type twos that show that estimating bolus based on meal size is not a terrible strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think you you might be you might know more than you than you think. It's just not defined by a particular parameter. I totally believe that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think that's true. Yeah, yeah, I definitely do because yeah, I mean, yesterday every day is a good example of diabetes. But yesterday is a great example that uh, my daughter had dinner, and all of our schedules were staggered oddly. My son came home and he ate, then my daughter ate, then I ate, then my wife came home and brought Chinese food with her. And so my, <laughs> my daughter had already eaten, and then she I saw her like looking over at my wife's food. She started picking at my wife's food, and we did all this stuff. But you know, I kept my daughter's blood sugar at ninety six during that whole time, and it's just it's well, I it's think the what, bumping and the nudging of the the Dexcom line is how I think of it actually. That that's exactly right, Scott. And I think when when people have uh, good, well thought out strategies and use the uh, advanced features. Uh, temp basal, um, dual wave boluses. I mean, however you want to approach that. If you're doing things with the pump that are possible to do with injections, you can do that kind of stuff. And, you know, I I feel like with myself and my patients that their diabetes is successful if their technology connects them with their diabetes, not separates them from it. And what what, what you're doing is you're you're connecting to it. You have found a system to do that. Hey, it's December. The holidays are here. How'd you like to get yourself something great? A gift, but it's free. Something to open up your world. And at the same time, release you from the chains of being tied down by a tubed insulin pump. That's right, people. We're talking today about the Omnipod tubeless insulin pump. I'd like you to go to myomnipod.com forward slash juice box or click on the link in your show notes to try a free, no obligation demo pod today. Listen to what I just said. Free, no obligation, demonstration. Sends it right to your house. You take off the boom, boom, stick it on. Next thing you know, this is what it's like to wear an Omnipod. You've got the experience. I just recently wore a demo pod for the first time. And I have to tell you, I never even noticed I was wearing it, really. That's the part I like the best. Anyway, at the time of year where we're spending money on other people and putting a lot of effort into other people all the time, which I like, don't get me wrong giving spirit of giving it's good stuff give something to yourself though give yourself that freedom give yourself an opportunity to at least learn what it's about you don't have to absolutely get it it's no obligation let them send it to you listen if you're an adult living with type 1 diabetes you're an adult you're probably always thinking about somebody else think about yourself for a moment and you know what if you're the parent of a child with type 1 let them live an entire life not knowing what it feels like to be tethered down to their insulin pump you guys this is a this is a no-brainer, I swear to you. MyOmnipod.com forward slash juice box with the links in your show notes. You will be happy you tried it. I think it's the most the most important aspect of it. I didn't mean to step on you, but like it's it's when the doctor tells you to do something and it feels that um, uncomfortable. And now this is your whole life just constantly following this set of rules that, that makes you, I don't know, uncomfortable or you're not successful as you want to be or whatever it ends up being. 
then every step of your day, I mean, diabetes is so 24 seven that you're, you're just struggling against the, like a, you know, against the tide constantly. And, and I just think, well, I, yeah, yeah, it is. I, I think it, I, I'm sorry. I mean, interrupt you. No, no, Go no, ahead. please. I was just going to say that I think if you find yeah. something that works for you, that's, that's what to do, you, you know, and, and I use my daughter's A1C as a, you know, as a mirror, as a mirror to look into and say, I think we're doing okay with this. Um, but I think of, you know, it's funny, we were in the, the office a couple weeks ago, and her A1C was, I think it was 5'6". Yeah, it, hasn't, yeah, well, it hasn't been over 6'2 in like three and a half years. Yeah, nothing and, wrong with that. You know, it's great, <laughs> right, fantastic, right? But then I said yeah. to my doctor, I said, hey, I am a little worried about her standard deviation. I'd like it to be lower. Do you have any advice for that? And I watched yeah. the doctor sort of change the subject. And I was like, oh, she doesn't have any advice. I, I was like, well, that's interesting. Like she She can't imagine you know, what it is to do. Now, in fairness to her, we did just switch our, our practice just did bring in a new doctor. Maybe she wants more time with us or I don't know what she might want, but it was interesting to think that we had gotten to a point with our care where the doctor sort of sheepishly looked away from me when I said, can you offer me any advice about how to do better? And I don't, I mean, yeah. I think it's possible. Maybe she can. And well, yeah, I think the standard deviation is important because um, it's hard to appreciate this with a kid with diabetes, but as an adult, you know, you have kind of a new set of issues. You know, most people with diabetes are going to have cardiovascular disease, type 1s or type 2s as adults. Of course, you don't think about that with a 10-year-old kid, right. but someday that's where they're going to be. But variability is very important in cardiovascular complications. A1C is super statistically controlled uh, or um, tied to microvascular complications. Uh, and, you know, when you get the big printout from your CGM, I think you said you have a Dexcom. Yeah. Is that right? Yep. I don't even look at the graphs first. I look at the average and the standard deviation. Right. That's where the gold is. Mm. And, uh, you know, the graphs are helpful. Um, but that 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 average plus or minus is huge. And, you know, 5.6 is great unless you're running you know, 20% below 40 all the time to right. achieve it. Right, right. And that, that is something so, we definitely talk about yeah. that here so people understand. Like, Arden does yeah. not, my daughter Arden does not have any uh, significant lows, you know, on any kind of, you know, it happens once in a while, but it doesn't happen right. with any regularity. We don't accept, well, she, yeah. Yeah, she, she's using a pump with a CGM. That That's really, that's, that's the great thing about these things now at this point in time. Mm-hmm. The rest of it's going to follow, of course. Yeah, but, uh, no, it's an, I'm glad. To, yeah, I'm glad to hear that's her experience. Oh, thank you. It's it's a uh, it's a really exciting. I mean, it really is. the The possibilities feel very limitless at the moment. And and as much as all of this sounds amazing, there's a little part of me that always just hopes for the, uh, you know, the quote unquote smart insulin to come because that really would just. I mean, it would be the end oh, of all of this. You, that, you know, yeah. You know. Even the ultra rapid acting insulins, which are imminent. Mm. Uh, Novo Nordisk has an ultra rapid that will be out soon. And uh, you know what we have really discovered in the last five years with pumps and CGM is some of the limitations of rapid acting insulin. It's it's a quality product, mm. but it doesn't behave exactly the same as native pancreatic insulin. And uh, it busts a lot of myths in a hurry uh, for most people. You know, there's kind of a myth among some type ones that if they took an injection of rapid acting, their blood sugar was better 20 minutes later. Well, that's not exactly how it works. Uh, but the ultra rapid, it's are going to, I mean, when you're looking at a sensor profile, it'll be different Yeah, for certain. No, I, I think that, you know, we talk about, I mean, I think that a lot of what we accomplish 
is at its core uh, an understanding of how the insulin reacts in my daughter's body. Like I think that's, um, yeah. you know, sorry, there's a beeping in the background, but but I think that's that's the core of how it is. Like you know, when I put in this much insulin and her blood sugar is X, twenty minutes later, you're not lower, you're moving, you know. And but if you, yeah, you know, right. but if you, but there's times where like last week was a great example. Like she got, we lost track, you know. Just you know, sometimes you just lose the handle on it, and she was all she was up in like two thirty, and there's dinner cooking, and it's you know it's carby stuff, and I just. I don't know another way to put it. Like I just crushed her with the with the insulin. Like I gave her enough insulin for the two thirty and for the meal, and just made sure to time the food when her blood sugar was you know falling quickly at like one forty, and when she began to eat, and then we saw it kind of come in for that landing, you know, around ninety. But but it was if I didn't understand how the insulin worked in her, then I would have been one of those people going, okay, well, first we'll bolus for this number and then get it down and then the food. And, you know, the whole thing would have taken four hours. You, you know, it, so. it, yeah, it would. And, you know, that, that's a very good strategy that you have because you're, you're looking at what's in front of you, but you're thinking about what's going to happen an hour from now. Yeah, I, I don't hey. see how to do it another way, honestly. I can't, I yeah. can't wrap my head around it another way. So. It, it, yeah, it's, it's, that's a really good way to, to do that. When, when the rapid-acting insulins came out, like 97, 98, we would we learned pretty quickly that uh, if we had people thinking about where they were going to be an hour from now, that would actually be better. Yeah. I mean, they need to assess where they're standing right now. But it's like throwing a football to somebody. If they're running away from you, you don't throw the ball where they're standing. <laughs> you throw the ball where they're going to be. That's exactly right. And people people get analogies like that, and that that's I mean that sounds like that's what you did here. Yeah. But it's it uh, the you know the other thing too is I deal with a lot of patients who are transitioning into adulthood. And uh, sometimes it's hard for them to understand that what they were doing when they were 13 is not not what is not going to work for them now. Right. Um, but that's okay. We'll we'll just find another strategy. It, it, it's out there. It exists. It's just not what you were doing when you were a kid. You have to stay so fluid and and not get rigid about anything. I mean, I think with the technology or with your day to day treatments, like like everything, if you get stuck on well, this is how it is. I mean, your your body's constantly changing. It's never always going to be this is how it is. It's just how it is for now. That's true. You know, I, I had a stroke five years ago, and, um, you know, it changed my ability to perceive hypoglycemia pretty mm-hmm. significantly. And uh, this was about the time that the CGMs were starting to get a little bit better. And that, that was good timing for me, because um, if that was 1990 when that happened to me, that would have been really, really difficult. Yeah. Let me ask you earlier, you said that... Um, everyone could expect a vascular issue at you meant at some point, right? Like it's, it'll, it'll, it, it will come to everybody at some point if you stay alive long enough. Is that the, I mean, uh, well, it's, it, it's that minute. It's it, well, it's two thirds of deaths okay. in adult diabetes and type ones have a lot of cardiovascular disease. I think we historically think of it as kind of a type two problem, but now we have type ones living longer than ever, ever. And, uh, you know, they're living long enough to get cardiovascular disease, so their profiles are similar. The, the difference now is we can manage the other risk factors that adults with diabetes have, like blood pressure and cholesterol. Okay. And there's very specific guidelines for that. But it, it's hard when you're 35 and you've had type 1 for 20 years, and your doctor is talking to you about controlling these adult-type risks because um, their focus has always been on A1C and blood sugars, which is still important. Right. Um, but it, it's, uh, you know, I, I, I have patients who are living 
extraordinarily long times. So I have one patient in my practice who's 76 who's on a pump. And 25 years ago, that somebody with type 1 to be 76, that would have been almost unheard of. Well, it's funny because as you're talking, what I realize is the idea that you're going to get cardiovascular disease is, is sort of good news. It means you're going to live long enough to get cardiovascular disease. I, I think that's right. Yeah. It is true. Yeah. yeah. And the other risk factors are cheap and easy to treat. Mm-hmm. I mean, blood pressure is super easy to treat. And even if you have to take two medications... For most people, that's like $12 a month. Right, and it works. Yeah. Then that's medication. And it works. It, it's true, yeah. true that works. Well, I have to say, like, you know, it's, I, you know, I do like having these conversations sometimes because it is it is a back-of-the-brain kind of thing for me. I mean, my daughter was diagnosed when she was just a couple weeks after her second birthday. So hmm. she's yeah. 12 now. She's had it for a decade already, and she's only 12. And so there is that part of you that thinks like, wow, is the bad stuff going to come in her thirties or is she going to be one of the lucky people who just, you know, it doesn't come for her that earlier. And it it really is. It's, you know, it's nothing you think about day to day because you're living your life. But I mean, it, it definitely is. It does creep into your thoughts once in a while. I'll say that for sure. It does. But I think our ability to manage those risks is a lot better. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, 25 years ago, if you were an adult with diabetes and you had high cholesterol, there was very little we could do for you. And although cholesterol is somewhat responsive to intensive lifestyle in adults with diabetes, it doesn't seem to bring their risk down to the same as somebody who doesn't have diabetes. Yeah. Uh, but we, we had no way to manage that before. And, you know, now we do. And when you combine that with healthy lifestyle, I have lots of patients in my practice with type 1 in their 50s and 60s who are doing great. Let me talk today about the Dexcom G5 Continuous Glucose Monitor. Let me just talk to you today about it from my heart. Now, some people are going to think of a a CGM as something that alarms and tells you when something's going wrong. And that's not incorrect. If your blood sugar gets dangerously low or begins to get dangerously high, you can absolutely set these parameters so that the system tells you, hey, your blood sugar is below where you want it to be or above where you want it to be or it's heading in that direction fast. You should know. I like all that. I mean, don't get me wrong. For safety reasons, Dexcom is wonderful. But that's just really the beginning of what a CGM should be doing for you. Get it for the safety, but stay for the amazing ability it brings for you to live healthy. Let me tell you a little bit about that. I'm going to show you something right here on my blog. This is from a year ago, but it's a blog post called Anatomy of a High Carb Breakfast. And in this post, I detail how Arden eats French toast, sliced bananas, green grapes, chocolate milk, bacon, and her blood sugar, I I have to look here at it, it never goes over, I don't know, 110 maybe? I did that. I made those adjustments with Arden's Omnipod using the information and the things that I've learned from the Dexcom CGM, okay? It's that simple. Here, let me, I'll, I'll find another one for you. Here's another blog post called, You Too Can Bolus for Chinese Takeout. Here's a simple graph on Arden's Dexcom. You go look at it at ardensday.com. But simple graph on Arden's Dexcom that shows that two and a half, maybe three hours after Chinese food, Arden's blood sugar was 115. Never went over maybe, I don't know, 130. Never went over 130. I've, I've spoken past the music. I can't tell you enough that the information that comes out of the Dexcom CGM, not only is it going to keep you safe today, but it is going to teach you how to stay healthy and how to live really live with type 1 diabetes in a way that you are not going to feel burdened. 
Go to Dexcom.com forward slash juice box to find out more. All right, let's get back to Dr. Johnson. And don't forget at the end of the episode, a little teaser about who's on the show next week. I always sort of think that people who have type one are almost, they almost live a healthier life because you're sort of forced to be aware of your health. It's not something that happens to you. If, if a doctor doesn't tell you, hey, this is wrong with you, pay attention, yeah. then you just go through life thinking like, hey, I'm the lucky one, right? Like every smoker thinks they're the lucky one until the day it hits them, right? You, you, know, you, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like, like it's, it's, as long as everything's yeah. okay, you have this sort of human belief that it's going to be okay forever and ever. But when someone comes along and says you, hey, there's an issue, pay attention, I sometimes think that the people I meet with type 1 diabetes are, are well, well more tuned into their health than, than the average population sometimes. I, I think particularly the ones who are having some success, that's true. Mm -hmm. um, I, um, I, you know, I have some people who, uh, you know, they, they run marathons and uh, cross-country skiing is huge here. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they're out skiing every day in the winter, not complaining about the weather. Um, those are the ones who are doing doing well, and there, you know, there's there's plenty of them out there, and you're right. Um, even if they don't get it when they're in college or some other transition period, if they find it, you know, they uh, that's exactly right. Let me ask you this then: when so oh, I sort of lost my train of thought, but when you said when you said that there are people who are doing well, like making out well, when people aren't making out well, do you see a commonality and why that is yeah i think uh i think some of it is burnout which probably sounds obvious and maybe kind of a cliche but um i think we need to understand that there is um there's a little larger percentage of adults with diabetes who have depression or anxiety that may not be you know quite as textbook or classic ada actually calls it diabetes distress now okay and I, I think um, focusing more in on those psychosocial factors, you know, when I, when I see patients in my office, I, I don't look at their data first. I don't even open their uh, electronic medical record. We have a conversation for two or three minutes about what's up and how things are going. And then we get into all that stuff. So uh, at, at the beginning, I'm trying to assess that right away with somebody like, you know, they had a change in their life, you know, break up with significant other, change in a job, you know, some other life thing that might be interfering with their diabetes. Yeah. And if we can kind of, you know, remember that we need to address that, uh, I think that's really, really helpful. But I do see a lot of depression and anxiety in diabetes. And uh, sometimes if you treat that, the diabetes stuff kind of settles down on its own. And that anxiety, is that fear of the insulin? I think it's sometimes really ill-defined, or um, people who don't trust their their insulin or their technology uh, for whatever reason, they seem to have a lot of it. Um, because, you know, they had one blood sugar of 35, so they think that's how it's going to be all the time. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, you, may, you might not ever have that, or it might be two years before that happens again. But, you know, we need to help people manage that and manage their life and... Um, remember that, you know, if we try to put diabetes as part of people's workflow every day, they do better. Okay. If it's something that they put in a box on a shelf and look at two or three times a day, that's, that's not a very good strategy. And the harder they try to separate themselves from it, I think those patients tend to have a lot more anxiety about it. Well, I think you just said something that I, I just agree with a ton, which is the idea that you have to just, 
you have to trust that the diabetes is going to do what it's going to do. If you start if you start second guessing that you know this insulin that I gave is going to do what it's you know something different, that that'll freeze you. It's almost like it's skydiving. Like you know, once yeah. you, you know you put the you got to trust that the chute's packed right and jump out of the plane. And and if it's not, then you hit the ground and that's that. But but you can't sky yeah. di- you can't skydive every day worrying that the chute's not going to open. You have to just believe it's going to. And yeah. and if it doesn't, then you know now hopefully you have a maybe you have a CGM or you have something else and you can you can help yourself through it. But you can't you know I I've said this here a billion times, but you can't accept twenty nine days of an unhealthy blood sugar to guard against the one day this month that your blood sugar is going to get low. You might as well just you know what I mean. Like you can't do that. Yeah. That's that's just that's just giving up, but it taking longer. You, yeah, and that that's courting a whole new set of risk. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that it's just, you know, one thing we sort of never talk about, or at least I don't even say it enough, I think, is the is the concept that, you know, you got a lifelong autoimmune disease and it sucks and it's not fair. And, you know, and sure, it shouldn't be like this, but it is. And so yeah. now left with the factors that exist in your reality, how are you going to make the best of it? You know, like I think that if you don't start from there, you know, I, it, it, I can see how it could become oppressive and it's not, you know, it's not beyond me that I found myself just the other day. Um, Eric, I, I was, I it was in my house. I had just done something with my daughter. I went downstairs, had nothing to do with diabetes. And I found like this, this sort of quiet moment in my life that I don't see very often. Mm. And I realized that the bag of uh, supplies that we took with us this past weekend, she played softball all weekend. So Arden played six games of softball and less than 40 <laughs> in less than 48 hours. So I had wow. a bunch of extra stuff with me and I had to put it away. And I just looked at the bag and I looked at all the stuff and I could just feel myself welling up. I wasn't even having any conscious thoughts. You know, you know what I mean? I just I thought, "Wow, I'm going to cry." And and I, mm. I stood there for a second. I was like, "Okay, you know, and and then it passed and I put the stuff away." But my personality lends to the the pressing on, you know what I mean? But what do you do when you're one of those people who just by the, by the, how your brain's wired, something like a moment like that can suck you in and you can't get back out of it again. And, and yeah. then you have diabetes on top of that. And that's just, it is. And you know, some of it is mindfulness practice principles. Some of it is, you know, if your life's too, if your life's too busy, we should focus on that. Mm-hmm. You know, we should not, you know, it doesn't have to always be about your diabetes. What can I help you to be a better time manager? I mean, that's how I got to be a doctor, by managing my time. Okay. I couldn't have done it without that. So I need to share skills with them that maybe aren't directly related to diabetes, but might be helpful. Um, and, you know, just trying to get them out of that 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 trap, that negative muck that, that can be really hard to get out of. And even people who have had a lot of success will sometimes fall into that. And then it, then it's really distressing for them because they haven't seen it or felt that way before yeah yeah it, when i guess when you're expecting things to go well and then all of a sudden it comes along and kind of hits you in the side of the head that's probably more distressing than having it have been a struggle the whole time yeah and do you have a lot of luck with that when with talking to to patients about kind of making those leaps or is it like when you stop and think about yourself as a physician if you see a hundred patients that are all uh in a in a similar situation as far as their their mental health goes around diabetes how many of those people do you pull out to call a success for yourself? Um, 
I think if we thought about following them forward through time, some people just take longer to to get out of it mm-hmm. than others. I would say a huge majority of them would probably eighty five or ninety. Yeah. See, and that that's yeah. I'm I'm super glad you said that because I, uh, something I always sort of preach over and over to people is no matter how bad it seems right now, you won't be here forever. You know, it, that's right. You just, it, yeah. it, it's just true. If I look back to how I just was speaking with a woman today on the phone, her daughter, uh, her son had been, has been diagnosed for about two years and she's gotten to that really, that great point that everybody gets to where she's starting to realize that there's more to it than what the doctor's saying. Um, she, she has, you know, a, a grander desire for what an outcome means daily for her son and but she's stuck between this really interesting place where people get between well the doctor told me this but this seems to make sense and people have a hard time going against their physician or or you know standing up to them even at some point and saying hey i think this what about this um and what i ended up telling her in the end was i said i think the best advice i could possibly give you is you have to trust your gut you know you just have to go with what you think is right and you have to know that this in my opinion, is just one step that everybody who lives with type 1 diabetes goes through at some point. This will be in your rearview mirror at some point. And she started talking about my daughter's A1C, and I said, no, no, no. I said, you have to realize that when my daughter was diagnosed for two years, her A1C was in the eights. You're talking about an A1C in the sixes. Like, you're 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 doing way better than I did. It, you know, yeah, I, it, it, well, it sounds like success for your daughter was playing six games of softball in two days. <laughs> well, and, uh, <laughs> that's, that's success. It was great. She had a great time, Dr. Yeah. Johnson. There was um, the night after the first, well, both nights after both both days, I, around one o'clock, she hit like that. She dropped a 50. And it was yeah. that kind of 50 where like, hey, here's carbs and you're still 50, you, you know, and so yeah, uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> nothing happened, you know, and yeah. so I, um, so I cut her basil off for a while and gave her some food and, and it was kind of really cool. She was in this, in the hotel with her friends. They were running around after this day of, of everything. Her blood sugar was sitting at like 75 before she went to bed. And I was like, you know what? Just Go ahead and when people are snacking, just snack right along with them. And so for this like two hour period, she's just like having like Girl Scout cookies and and you know handfuls of popcorn and everything. And her blood sugar was just sitting at like seventy five or eighty. And I kept saying yeah. to her, I'm like, either this is going to be like a perfect science experiment, and you're not going to get low tonight. But after mm-hmm. what ends up being six hours of softball over a nine hour period, I'm like, you're you're definitely it's not going to work. You, you know so. Um, at around one o'clock when I saw her start dipping down, I cut her basil off and gave her juice and I was up for a little bit, but it was just, she had such a great time, you know? And so I think you're right. I think living well is, you know, I think they say that's the best revenge, right? (laughs) I've heard that before. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It it really is. Um, I think it's just true. I think you, I mean, if your goal is not to live as healthily and, and, and well as you can with this, then I mean, what is your goal? you know so it's yeah it's true i uh i i tell people that i'm so glad i got to see this technology and uh you know i'm i uh i tell um people who are younger um i don't see patients under 16 but like like your daughter or even some of my younger patients i'll say i can't even imagine the triumphs you're going to see in your lifetime long after i'm out of here um but you know, I, I, I say things like, you know, 
it would suck to die 15 minutes before somebody figures this out. <laughs> right? <laughs> and it's going to so, be, you know, somebody's going right. down and some guy's walking to the podium to say, hey, we we, we fixed the whole thing. Just hold tight five more minutes. <laughs> right. Hang on. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, that's going to be a huge day, too. And, um, sure. you know, a lot of it is uh, autoimmune diseases are more complex than maybe were originally appreciated. Um Beta cell transplant is super complex. Beta, beta cells and their interactions uh, with other cells in the body and all the feedback loops and everything, uh, I think that's probably more complicated than maybe was appreciated 25 years ago. But somebody's going to figure it out. And uh, I think the autoimmune disruption is going to have to happen with the beta cell replacement for it to really be a true cure. Um, but... Uh, those, those kinds of those kinds of immune disruptors are used in other autoimmune diseases right now. You see these IV drugs on TV for rheumatoid arthritis. Well, they're immune disruptors, and that's how they work. Yeah, that's something. It, it's it's just crazy to think that that encapsulation is something that somebody's working on. You, you know, like that. That's a, yeah. That's an odd thought. Yeah. Even even going back to you know my limited time with it in a decade, it was you know. I never imagined that five years ago when, you know, it's just, it's crazy. It, it really is. And somebody's going to pop through and it's going to be a great thing. And, and I do, I do always like to say when we're talking about this stuff that, you know, I genuinely think that you should live with all the hope in the world that there's a cure coming, but you can't, you can't live every day like you're waiting for it. You know, you have to, yeah, yeah, yeah. you, you have mean, to, you have to do the work, do right, the job. Right. In the yeah. meantime, do what it is that's available. And, but I would never, I would never lose hope for it. I mean, I, I just, I really wouldn't, no. you know, so uh, I, I think that's true. You know, I'm I'm you know, I'm a member of the American Diabetes Association professional section, and I sit on their primary care advisory group because that's my background. And I um, I go to the uh, big meeting every year, the scientific sessions, and there's fourteen to sixteen thousand providers and scientists there, and it's just so great to just kind of bask in the buzz of thinking that all of these great minds from all over the world or working on this problem yeah, or stuff related to it. Yeah. And, you know, when they presented the, uh, the 30 year DCCT data, I mean, that was almost emotionally overwhelming. I mean, you know, despite all the limitations of the last 30 years of treatment of type one, especially the first 10 of that 30, there are still people here 30 years later who've cut their incidence of kidney disease in half. Um, just by using what was available to them. So, um, you know, we just we keep pushing forward. I, I believe that, that this is going to happen. I may not see it, but I think there's little question that your daughter won't. Yeah. No, I, I, I have a, you know, that's my genuine hope, obviously, is that, is that this, that these artificial pancreases are, are something that even in my daughter's lifetime, we're going to look back and go, wow, I can't believe that's what we were doing. Yeah, it's a place. They're, they're they're great, but they're a placeholder. Right, right. Now I know they I really are. I yeah. interviewed. I say this sometimes, but his age makes it so valuable. Um, the actor Victor Garber, I interviewed last year, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. he had been diagnosed when he was really young, and he's in his sixties now. And he would just talk the way he talked about the things he did, like you know the boiling, you know his urine to test his urine, like you know all that all that stuff. It, even he was like, I can't believe this is what I used to do, and and I think. I think that this, the sign of success is that inside of a lifetime, if you can say that a couple of times, you, you know, you know, I think that's how yeah. you're going to be able to tell we're moving forward quickly and not just that. That's true. Yeah. yeah. I, I have a night, I have a vintage 1930s 
injection kit. You know, it's a steel needle that you have to file. The syringe is glass. Um, I had a patient who I took care of until he was 68 when he passed a couple of years ago. And he said, you know, if he broke his syringe, he might not get one for a few days. I mean, it was glass. It was glass, and they had to, yeah. And, you know, he would have had to go to 150 miles to Fargo to get it. There was and, someone on the podcast who told me that her mother broke hers, and they had to work out a payment plan with the pharmacy to get them another one. Because it yeah. was so even incredibly expensive back then, she couldn't afford it. Yeah. And that's, yeah, it's fascinating. It really it is. It really is. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't know how much of this you're comfortable talking about, but when did you notice your your cardiovascular issues and, and what kind of an impact that mm-hmm. they had on you? Well, I had um, another significant risk factor with this. I had been smoking starting when I was 15 until I was 40. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's one of those things you wake up one day and you're going, why am I still doing this? And at that point in my life, I was really, my busyness was really controlling me. And um, although I felt fairly successful with my diabetes, not all of this life management stuff was was really coming easy to me, you know, for whatever reason. And I um, had a I had a stroke that affected my vision when I was 44 in 2004. And uh, that was a huge wake-up call. And uh, at that time, um, you know, everybody was they they were focused more on some of my other risk factors that maybe weren't as well controlled, like blood pressure. And uh, so we really got a lot more aggressive with that. I uh, kept having so I had a few TIAs, and then I had another stroke event in 2012 where I um, developed some left-sided weakness. And I uh, I think what happened then was they were really confused because my risk factors were pretty well controlled other than just the fact that I had diabetes. I mean, and you can't always control family history. I have a pretty strong family history of cardiovascular disease on my mother's side. And, you know, you can't control that genetic part of it as well. But I actually ended up having a kind of unusual heart rhythm problem that was predisposing me to stroke that didn't really get solved until about uh, 2015, 2014, 2015. And then with the right medications, now that has just all stopped. So had had that been discovered earlier, the strokes may not have occurred. Or and with the frequency. With the frequency. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. Um, so I, I think there were some other factors, and I think that's an important lesson too. We can't always blame the diabetes for everything. Yeah, right. You know, sure, that increased my risk, but that wasn't the entire story here. Right. You were still and, smoking um, and, and, yep, yeah. and, you know, that was, that was uh, you know, I should have been done smoking in 1989. Um, but you know, I just, um, you know, there's no other way to say it. It was, uh, I just, I just didn't, I was too busy with my life to always do the right thing. And, um, you know, looking back at it now, it seems perfectly ridiculous and it sounds perfectly ridiculous, but I don't mind sharing that part of my story with people because I want them to know that I didn't, I didn't always do everything right. Or I would be so focused on one thing to the exclusion of everything else that I thought I was doing everything. Well, you know what, too, to, yeah. to, to this point is just going on in my own life right now. I have uh, an older son who doesn't have diabetes. He's 17. My wife is, you know, uh, in her early 40s. They, the two of them got sick a couple weeks ago. It started off with a little bit of pressure in their head, and then suddenly they were coughing. And now it's been two weeks, and they're, 
They've all been to the doctor. They're taking medications. And it's oppressive. You, you know, like, it's, they're still not <laughs> right. well. They're, now they're, they're run down. They're tired. They don't remember the last time they felt well. They don't remember the last time. And there is this sort of, I think I came to realize about a week into it that my job and all this is just sort of like cheerlead them through like, Hey, it's, you know, how's it going? Are you feeling better? I bet you. my son will come home and be like, I don't, I don't think I'm any better. I'm like, oh, I bet you are, you know? And like, you're just, because, yeah, right. Because That's of how cool. easy yeah. it could be to just sort of, because he's still, he's still going to school. He's keeping his grades up. My wife's still going to work. We're all still living our lives, but it, it, it's, it's a snapshot for me about, you know, when I hear people say, oh, you know, it's just, it's too much. I have this diabetes and it's just every day and it's constant. It's too much. Yeah. My, my son's cold's going to go away at some point, but you know, what do right. you do? What do you do when your diabetes isn't? And, and do you think that, so were you smoking? Well, first of all, it was the time, right? Like smoking wasn't thought of as poorly when you started, when you were a kid, I'm imagining. Oh no. Uh, right. You know, I started smoking in 1974 yeah. and, um, yeah, we didn't have the knowledge that we had had now, and you know, I um, you know when I talked earlier about you know if you're there's some people who they just have this busy factor in their lives where they're just not making making they're not creating space to have success, right. you know, with their with diabetes or you know anything else that's going on with them, even outside of that. And I was really kind of in a place like that, and. Um, but you know, certainly by 2000, when I quit, I knew. Yeah. <laughs> I knew what the what the issues were with that. But you know, I like to share with my patients that uh, you know I I haven't always done everything right. But here's here's what I can teach you about this, mm-hmm. and uh, I think I think that's that's great. I think people really like that. Yeah, I I, I I've been meaning to tell people, so I'll just I'll, we're kind of wrapping up here at the hour, so I'll say yeah. it here. But yeah. I know when people hear, you know, you know, I, I share my daughter's A1C. So that people can think, wow, I bet you I could get to that too. Because I'm, I was as big of a mess handling diabetes as anybody was. And if I can get here, then you, certainly you can. Um, but at the same time, you have to recognize that sometimes people see those numbers and they go, oh my God, I'm never going to get to that. And, or, you know, what, what, what perfection that must look like on a CGM graph to get a 5.6A1C. But that's not the truth. The truth, you know, I, if, you, if someone's sitting around imagining that my daughter's blood sugar is just 85 all day long. Yeah, that would be wrong. Yeah, that's not that's not right. And so, yeah. you know, even in the midst of a good day, and I would say that when she was playing softball the other day, I was doing I was kind of kicking butt on Saturday. I mean, she was between I think 70 and and maybe bounced to 140 maybe once or twice, but then there was a spot in there where I just I don't know what happened. Like I missed and she jumped up to 180. And I know for most people they're like they're probably like 180, shut up. You're like, you know, but, but you know, but <laughs> yeah. but but you know, Dr. Johnson, for me, for me, 180 is well outside of what we're shooting for. Like you know, it's no different mm-hmm. than saying to a person who's like, I'm willing to accept two hundred saying they went to three hundred. If I go to one eighty, I'm I'm well outside of my acceptance range. And so right. and so she had this spike, I got it back again. And then like I said, she had the low overnight that we had to deal with. And it's not like, you know, there's no autopilot that, that that's for certain. And, but at the same time, I hope that people understand that you can be very far from perfect and still be doing a really great job. I think that's true. I think you have to, you know, just kind of uh, be sure that you're celebrating your successes and not being overly focused on when something doesn't go exactly right. I, I Um, you know, and we do, we do planning for, for people. We say, well, you know what? You're getting married in a week. Here's what I would do. 
you know, I would not make diabetes number one on your list, but let's, you know, let's have some prevention strategies so you can really enjoy your day. Yeah. Or you're going to go on vacation to, you're going to go to Europe. Well, you know, maybe tight control is not our objective, but let's keep you safe while you're, while you're on this trip. Right. And, and, you know, when things are going well, ride it. That's a streak. You know, you don't mess with a streak. You know, exactly. You, do, you don't just go with it. Well, I don't I mean, think of I don't yeah. even think of when it goes wrong as a mistake. Like I try very yeah. hard when things don't go the way I expect. I just try to think of that as data telling me how to do better the next time. You know, like that to me, it's not a and and you know I did something here. You know, I don't usually record this late in the day, but so this is over top of my daughter's um, softball practice after school. And so I let her stay a little higher about an hour ago than I normally would have because I just, you know, what, what what's the reason? You know, you and I are doing this, and you know, I can I can let twenty five points go for for an hour, and you know, it's not the it's not the worst thing in the world. Her A one C will still be well under six when we get it checked in three months. You bet. You, you know, but we're still gonna, you know, you and I are gonna finish up here in a minute, and I'm gonna get a hold of her and tell her to bowl us, and uh, and you know and be on our way. And that's the back to come full circle. It's the genuine gift of the technology that my daughter can look at a 140 blood sugar and say, I can adjust this without a, without, you know, without a finger stick and without, without having to pull a needle out and stick myself with it. I can, yeah, isn't know. that great. Yeah, and awesome. I think kids who learn responsibility through their diabetes end up having very good life management skills later. They're, ha- they're able to handle other responsibilities. I, I've seen I see that so yeah. far with her. I mean, I she's yeah. just uh, she's well more mature than she probably should be, but not in a way that makes you sad for her. You know what I mean? Not like she's not like she's a fifty year old lady walking around in a twelve year old's body. Just you know, yeah. she has a way of considering things that's advanced. You know, I guess is, a, yeah. is the only way to say it. So. It's just different, yeah. and yeah, it's her. It's I've her seen situation. that. You know, I did diabetes camp for many years, and. Uh, you know, I saw that in these kids. The kids who really were responsible about this, they were responsible about everything. It was incredible, really. Yeah, it's, I, it's I learned a lot from them. <laughs> well, you know what? It, and that's that. That's a great message, I think, sort of to kind of head out on, is that there's always going to be somebody doing something with diabetes. That, you know, I think that's why this podcast is, is I think that's why people like it. I think it's you sit and listen and you hear somebody else tell their story and then you sort of either find yourself in it or you find motivation in it, you know what I mean? And then you, maybe you reach a little further because you say, hey, this person did it or maybe somebody tells a story and you're like, wow, that happened exactly to me. And that makes you feel a little more normal, you, you know? And and, and, yeah. that, and that's a lot of, um, that's a, a big weight off your shoulders too, just not feeling alone, so. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's exactly right, Scott. Well, Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for coming on and doing this. I really genuinely appreciate it. Yeah, I've enjoyed our conversation very much, Scott. I hope we can talk again sometime. Oh, that'd be wonderful. Thank you to Dexcom and Omnipod for sponsoring the podcast. Please go to myomnipod.com forward slash juicebox or click on the link in your show notes or dexcom.com forward slash juicebox or again, click, click, click the link in your show notes. Hey, don't forget, if you need a Bold with Insulin t-shirt before the holiday, it is time to order now. And by that, I mean this is like the beginning of December 2017. If you're listening to this like three years from now, I don't even know if the shirts are still for sale. I might have sold them all by then. Just go to juiceboxpodcast.com to see the styles and sizes that are available. And now your brief audio tease for next week. 
strikes out three batters. He's been doing that all postseason long. What a pitcher.